Heavenly Father, we desire that you be glorified today. We desire that in everything that we have sung, spoken, prayed, given, that it all bring glory to you because you're the reason why we are here. Lord, we pray that truth will be upheld. When we think through that idea in Timothy, of the church being the pillar and buttress of truth, may that be true of us today as you have designed it. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, most of you know, uh, you're there in 2 John right now, but most of you know that we live on a farm uh, in Ohio County, just out of town that way a little bit. And uh, one of the things that uh, was new to me on farms in Kentucky that I hadn't been around very much before was uh, ticks. Significant, significant ticks. Uh, Ellie, our daughter, was up spraying kind of some fence lines yesterday. And I'm going to tell you this, and now none of you will ever let your children come to our house again. But I will tell you, we have sprays and all kinds of things. It didn't need to be as it was. But she came in and she said, uh, she's 13, she said, uh, I had a lot of ticks on me out there. I said, oh, did you, like how many? 53. And I said, oh, oh, Bessie, this is, this is not good, you know. And so mostly they were crawling around, they weren't biting me. It's okay, well, we need to do some more things about this. And so I just, while I was studying yesterday, I, I saw something came across my little CVS feed thing on my phone and said, hey, there's this new tick thing. There's this new line of clothing you can wear up to 70 times and they have a chemical in the clothing that will keep ticks off of you. And then it said, you know, how did this study come about? Well, they paid a bunch of people, a room this size, to sit in there. They had a whole bunch of ticks that they let loose in the room, seriously, and they had them watch a movie, and they weren't allowed to wiggle or fidget or kill them while the ticks crawled on them. And then they, they had, so everybody got new clothing, and some of them were treated, and some were not, which I thought to myself, I wonder how much you'd have to pay me to do that. I, you know, I was kind of, you might be thinking that yourself, hmm, kind of money here. But the, the big focus that I got from that is it is so cool when science can come up with something. And I looked at the health sides of it, and, you know, this, this chemical, you know, coming from this flower and different things. But... It's really cool when science comes up with, with new things. Now, we have to be wise with it. We can't just say, well, science says, because there has been things that science has said that have been very unhealthy for people. But it is really a cool thing when there is some new scientific thing that can be a benefit to us. A problem that we run into in our culture is we want new things like that, and oftentimes people try to attribute them or give them or apply them to our God. The Bible is really, really clear. You know, God says, you know, I am God and I change not. But if you read, you know, the New York Times religion bestseller list, or if, if you um, go into a Christian bookstore, you're going to see over and over and over all these books that are promoting, hey, I found a new way to God. Hey, there's this, there's this new way that no one's come up for in, in 2,000 years, but if you do this, or if you go to this, or if you read my book, there's this whole new thing that nobody's ever thought of. And that kind of thinking is just permeating, I'm going to say, quote-unquote, Christianity right now. I found something out in the Bible that can't be found out by other people. In our world today, there is a fixation on I feel rather than 
this is. Feelings seem to trump um, definitions of truth time after time after time. Truth often becomes what I want it to be or whatever I feel it should be rather than what something truly is. So when a, a person in Owensboro hears you as a Christian say, this is truth, this is a truth statement about God, their typical thing that they're hearing is, this is your truth, or this is your opinion. Claims of truth are not popular right now. So we have things like right and wrong, morality, integrity, absolutes. All those go up for grabs because there's not in society oftentimes right or wrong or absolutes. And I remember watching a YouTube video. This is probably 10 years ago, and I don't remember if it was Jared Wilson or, or one of those guys, and they were going up to teenagers in a school hallway and saying, asking questions, something like, hey, you know, do you believe in absolute truth? And I remember one kid says he's eating like a big sub sandwich, and he has it, and he says, no, there's no absolutes. And Wilson, I think it was Jared Wilson, yanks his sandwich from him, takes a big bite and hands it back, and he says, there you go, buddy. There's no absolute truth. There's no right or wrong. I can do whatever I want. And the look on the kid's face was, you can't take my sandwich. You know, there might not be right or wrong, but you, you can't take my sandwich. And Wilson basically said, so there are some absolutes, but they're connected to things like a sandwich, not morality or right or wrong. Truth is a really big deal. John is going to tell us today that there is truth. The Bible claims there is right and wrong, that God desires some things, and he's often quite specific about it, that there are consequences, sad consequences for ignoring. A couple definitions I would like to, to hand out there. Here's one from the Oxford Dictionary, just on truth. It's just a short definition. It says this. It says, truth is in accordance with fact or reality. It must be accurate or exact. Another quote that I read says this. It says, the Bible defines truth as being utterly reliable and enduring. Authentic biblical truth is inextricably linked to the dependable, unchanging character of God. You can trust everything he says. He never lies. He always keeps his word. He is faithful to all his promises. So the question I have for us today is, what do you think of truth? Is your truth different than the person sitting next to you or the person sitting across the room for you, from you? Does truth change over generations and millennia? One thing I've heard often working with teenagers is, well, that was true in grandpa's day, but it's not true anymore. Well, some of those might be connected to, you know, I don't know how long a car lasts or radios or some things like that. But we have confidence in God's word throughout millennia and will continue to do so. So does truth change over generations and millennia? And, uh, and, and maybe just to kind of have in our mind as we think through this, can we be kind and winsome, even loving, connected to truth? So often we have somebody, and you might work with someone like this or have a relative or whatever, and this person has to fight and argue about every little detail and every little thing. Well, winning at the coffee pot at work is not the same as saying I have ultimate, deep trust and confidence in the truth of God and his word. So let's kind of keep that in our thinking as we go through this book. We'll move through it pretty quickly through 2 John. We're basically going to introduce truth. We're going to see how truth is practiced. We're going to see why truth needs to be protected. So truth introduced, we just have our greeting here in 1 John, and it says the elder to the elect lady and her children. 
Um, you might ask, who's this recipient? There's good people on both sides who say this really is a literal woman. Other people will say, well, this is the church. A uh, literal woman would say, hey, the very next letter, 3 John, is written to a man. It fits well that this is a woman. Uh, the easiest and simplest reading is that it's a woman. Um, many early church fathers, I guess I'm not an early church father, but I lean as well, that it's probably a local congregation. The term ecclesia is feminine. That's the word for church. Um, the church is known as a bride. Some persecution at the time, I think it could easily be just a veiled reference to a, another congregation and the children or the people in that congregation, but it's not something worth fighting over. But what is the focus? Well, the focus is, and we have been saying it, is truth and truth connected to love. The word truth is found in this little short chapter five times. Love is found four times, and he starts it off strong in the greeting, kind of brackets it with it. It says, to this lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. So if you love and know the truth, you love this congregation. Because, and how can you do it in verse 2? Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. You see, in John's thinking and writing, he connects truth absolutely to Jesus Christ. And I hope you're seeing that truth being wrapped up in Jesus Christ, even that in that verse right there. He finishes this introduction in, in verse 3 with saying, Grace and mercy, and peace, huge theological terms, be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son. And he bookends it there again, in truth and love. Truth is a big deal to John. In John chapter 5, we have, he talks about John the Baptist. This is in, in the, the, in the um, gospel of John that he wrote as well. In John chapter 5, he's talking about John the Baptist, and he says, what about John the Baptist? That he bore witness to the truth, who is Jesus. Fast forward a little bit, and Jesus is talking in John chapter 8. And it says he says it to an audience that believed. But then you're going to see in there in John chapter 8, if you do some more reading, well, some of them really did believe, and some of them proved later on to not truly believe. But to this audience, he says to them, then you will know the truth. And what does that truth do? And the truth will set you free. And they go in, some of them arguing with him, hey, we've never been enslaved, and they, and, they, and they go into that. But the truth matters so much to John. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. We have in John 18, Jesus says, I have come for truth. And many of us remember the story and say, oh, and what does Pilate say? And Pilate says to him, what is truth? Echoing what many in our day today say, what is truth? You just get to make that up. What is truth? Your truth? And then John watched his beloved friend, mentor, and savior die on the cross. Truth mattered to John. So that is truth introduced, and it is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. Now the ones we'll focus on a little bit more is truth practiced and truth protected. And that truth practiced, what does it look like? in real life. I think the teenagers in the youth group sometimes get tired of me asking that because we'll study through the scripture and I'll say to them, but, but what does that look like in real life? Because if you've taught children any amount of time or teenagers any amount of time or adults any amount of time, what do we all have the tendency of doing? Reading it, and then if we had the reading comprehension test, we'd say, oh, uh, yeah. So I push really hard with the teenagers, so what does that look like in your home? What does that look like when you're annoyed with your parents? What does that look like with a fellow student? What does truth practiced 
look like in real life? Well, in this, in, in verses 4, 5, and 6, it talks about walking in truth and walking in love. And walking just means living life. So what does truth look like, practiced, in real life? Well, it says in verse 4, it says, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And right away, some of us will notice, if you're a parent, you see, you know, some of your children. I will tell you, as, you know, being a pastor for, for 12 years before, before coming here, there are few things harder to comprehend than someone that you have poured yourself into, that you have loved and cared for, that you have pointed Christ to, that now says, well, I heard that, and now I, I don't believe that anymore. At the same time, whether you're a teacher or a principal or connected to Heritage Christian School, or if you've worked with anybody over time, this has been the case for you. That you have had people that you have loved and cared for, and it might even be in your own family, that you nurtured and cared and loved and pointed to Christ, and now they say, I don't want to have any part of that. And I have no doubt that we would agree there are few things more heartbreaking than that. But he says here, I rejoice to find some of them are walking in the truth. Some of them are following the things that were taught and pointed out. Some have been led astray, and we're going to see in a few later verses that the, the temptation to be led astray is over and over at this time, is over and over today, and has been over and over in the almost 2,000 years in between those two time points. But that's one of the reasons we, if we're going to be warned that truth needs to be protected. We need to fight for truth and watch for truth. A, 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 an evangelist who died in the early 80s at an old age, he said this, his name was Vance Havner, he said this, what we live is what we believe Everything else is religious talk. I'll read that one more time. What we live is what we believe. Everything else is religious talk. So whether you are a third grader today or whether you are 93 today or anywhere in between, what is our walk? How are we walking in truth? Are we saying words that are accurate but have actions that do not represent our Savior? It's a challenge for every single one of us in this room. But I love where it says here, I rejoice greatly to find some people walking in the truth. I think we could agree on the sorrow of seeing some walk away from Christ. But I think we could agree on the joy of find, when we meet people that love Jesus Christ. Many of you know the Baldwins very well, and I don't. I'd met them two years ago, and I've talked to them over the phone a couple times. But I don't know them well. And when they were here a week and a half ago on a Wednesday night and they shared, I felt the whole time like I, I'm getting to know them better. And look at how much they love Jesus. And hey, we're, we're with them on this. I felt a closeness with them that I had not gotten, having seen them just a little bit before. And then we had a meeting as pastors with them. And they laughed and they joked around and they shared hard things. And I left that meeting driving home. And those meetings always go longer than we plan but are always so good for me personally. And I went home from that meeting saying, I love those people, and I was praying for those people, and I have a heart for those people in a, in a different way than I did three weeks ago. Because I met somebody else that loves Jesus Christ deeply and is concerned for the truth. And we find those things, right? As, as pastors at Heritage, we met with Rick Howerton a week or two ago, and he's with the uh, Kentucky Baptist Association, and he kind of does pastoral care and advice and different things, a really really good guy, is based out of Bowling Green, and I left that meeting saying, I've never met this guy in my life, and I don't know if I'll ever see him again, 
but he loves Jesus Christ, and we're in this together. I love that. A couple weeks back, I, I met with some of the, the pastors at, at uh, Grace Reformed, and we were, I was in a class, and some of them were there, and I got to, I've met a few of them before, but you spend time in a class, and you get to know someone better, and you're hearing backgrounds of people and some struggles with people and some things people are working on. And I left those meetings, those classes, and they weren't teaching them. They were just there. And I felt like, man, I love these guys. And I like meeting the spouse of this one. And we're in this together. And that is a joy that John says, look at what we have. I rejoice greatly to find other people walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. This is not a truth that they just made up. This is directed from a holy God. This is truth. And then it says in verses 5 and 6, it's pushing walking in love. It says, and I, now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, so I'm not coming up with anything new here, but the one that we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. What a big deal in scripture. You know, John 13, 34 and 35, how will people know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another? And we are sometimes tempted to, to put other things in there. How will they know you're my disciples? Well, I go to church on Sundays. How will I know your disciples? Well, I give or I do this or I do this or I do this. It doesn't say any of those things. And many of those are great things to do. What does it say to the love that we have for each other is how people looking in will say, what's the deal with those Christians? Oh, they really do care. And I will tell you that my family has been personally cared for so, so well by so many of you generously um, with love and encouraging words and prayer. And that is a gift. And too often we can look at a local church and even going to church and think, well, it's something I, I ought to do. Well, yes, we ought to, but it is so much more than that. We get to come here and love people and receive love and get to know them in a closer way to challenge and encourage. What a gift from God. And there are people all over the world that would, that would give their left foot to be able to come here into a church service and be able to praise God and have you know, air conditioning and be able to hang out with other believers. And they might be in a persecuted place where, oh, just a handful of us can get together. So, so blessed. So blessed. It's important that we not lose this pushing. This is not something that has come on recently. This is not something new. We've got all kinds of Old Testament examples of failing to walk in love and truth. You could look at Adam and Eve when Adam says, after sinning, he says, what's with this woman that you, you gave to be with me? We could look at Cain and Abel, where Abel's sacrifice pleased the God, God and and Cain's did not. And Cain kills him. We could look at the evil of Noah's day when God looks down and sees nothing but evil everywhere and says, what is going on? I should blot these people out. We could look at what Pastor Mark has been preaching through with Joseph. Joseph's brothers, the most loving one said, hey, let's just hide them and throw them in this cistern and, sell them, and then sell them into slavery. That's like the best brother. The other brothers are like, you know what, best thing to do, let's just go ahead and kill him. Over and over and over and over in scripture, we have these examples of, of broken love, of incorrect love. And I can look at that and say, oh, that is terrible. But where are we? Where am I? Do I not recognize from the beginning, from the heart of God, 
even given out in the, in, the, in the Ten Commandments when those first four commandments are connected to love God, love God, love God. And the last six commandments are connected to love your neighbor, love your neighbor, love your neighbor. This is not a new commandment or a new thing. So truth practice is lived out in daily life. Kids, it's with annoying at times siblings. Employees, it's with difficult coworkers. It's with tight finances. It's with fellow members of heritage that might be prickly at times, might be different than you, might, might have a different perspective on something. Love is to be lived out. 1 John chapter 3 says this, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. That is truth practice. Truth practice. And now let's go on to truth protected. Um, there's this little four at the beginning of, of uh, verse 7, and it's really connecting it, saying, hey, what you're going to hear now, verse 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13, is connected to these first verses. There's a connection there. It could be translated because. That would be a, a good translation as well. What does it say there? It says in verse 7, 4, the reason we need to wa be walking in truth, the reason we need to be walking in love, truth practice, or the reason for that is that Many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver, and a pretty strong word there, the Antichrist. We might be thinking to uh, John's earlier epistle. If you want to turn with me, it's just a couple pages to John chapter, 1 John chapter 2. And, um, or you can just listen as I read. Kind of listen to what it's saying about this, how it uses this term antichrist. Anyone who is not of the truth, who is following Christ, is kind of a, a little a antichrist. They are anti our Savior. It says, starting in verse 18, and I'll read through 25, it says, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. It says in verse 19, how do we know them? Well, they went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. And that abide is continue, remain, be part of who you are. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has made to us, eternal life. Well, that kind of fleshes it out a little bit. What is he saying here? Followers of truth, followers of Jesus Christ are not against Christ, but those who do not follow are the Antichrist. They are against Jesus Christ. Serious, serious condemnation. But the other thing that we see in 1 John chapter 2 is really the gospel fleshed out in more detail than we get from 2 John. And it's really saying, hey, there is this, this Messiah that is promised. That's the word Christ. There's a Messiah that is promised, and it is Jesus. And he really did come. And he really did live on this earth in a human body, fully God and fully man, 
as Pastor Ted, as we read together this morning, and Pastor Ted led. Fully God and fully man. And he really came to this earth, and he really taught, and he really did miracles. And he really was interrogated and abused and eventually killed on the cross. And he really was put in a tomb, and he really did stay in there three days, and he really rose from the dead. And our only response is to say, you know, what did Jesus say in Mark chapter 1 when he's going around and he's traveling and he's starting his ministry? He's going around and he's saying, repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if you're not a follower of Christ yet today, that is our response to the gospel. To say, what did Jesus say? Repent, turn, run from sin, and believe the good news. The kingdom is here, is what he's telling in, in Mark chapter 1. And that's really a very small version of that, is what is going on in verse 7 here. They don't confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. And really, most heresies in our world today, and even in past centuries, were connected to that. Either denying the literal body of Christ, or denying the, the literal deity of Christ, and either one of those, you are going to get into heresy. You look at Christian science, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, the list goes on. That's where the heresy is typically going to be found. But what does it say in 1 John chapter 4, verse 2? Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. What does it say in our section right here? The coming. It's talking about both the incarnation and the future coming. This is a bodily return it is going to happen physically. Colossians chapter 2, in Jesus, in him, the fullness of God dwells bodily. These are big, important concepts for all of us to understand and to uphold. Because as I said before, falling off of that takes us into heresy. In him, the fullness of God dwells bodily. So the reality of deceivers and the warning to be on guard because of deception. Look at verse 8. It says, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. And, I, and, and we will say this. That watch yourselves is a really big deal. And one of the things I think is interesting, I, I worked in the YMCAs for a while, and I worked with kids, did sports and youth and day camps and things like that. And I'd have 80 kids on buses running around and um, interesting to me that so many parents are so concerned, like, that their kid not get a sunburn, you know. SPF 50, what are you trying to kill my kid? Get him SPF 80. And I'd be like, hey, we, you know, we kept him from getting, it's not that burned, you know, come on. We would hear, I would hear stuff like that all the time. We had a, I taught the sixth grade, we went up to sixth grade. Well, how do you keep fifth and sixth grade boys enjoying going, going on a, a day camp? Well, I'd take them out to our farm. This is when we lived in western Nebraska, and I'd teach them how to, like, I don't know, run a chainsaw. Or we'd do things, you know, like life skill kind of things. And I'd get parents really don't teach my kid how to run a chainsaw. Or we'd, we'd get a group. I'd, I'd talk to the older kids, and I'd say, hey, do you guys like horses? Yeah, I've ridden one in a circle. Well, I'll, so I'd call somebody that I was friends with and say, hey, bring me some real horses to this camp that we had and just, you know, leave them here. And we'd get real, like, rope horses, and these little kids – They'd whack him in the side, and that horse would be whoosh, gone. This is, these are good, but, and parents, oh, careful, careful. Now, big picture, they liked, you know, I got more and more and more kids because the kids liked exciting stuff. Handful of parents I had to work with, it's very good. 
But it's interesting how worked up you can get about a, a you know, level of sunburn on your kid and have no parental controls over their phone. So you're not going to let your kid walk out, oh, oh, get your nose too, 13-year-old. Hey, enjoy that phone. Hey, enjoy that movie. I don't even know where you guys are going, but you're with good kids. Have fun. I think watching is so important as a parent. Watching is important as pastors. Watching is important for all of us, watching ourselves. Because you know what? Satan is alive and well. And too much, we act like it's, it's no big deal. So don't worry so much about sunscreen and ticks. You should worry about sunscreen and ticks. But, but compared to big picture things, watch. Watch yourselves so that you do not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Such a common theme in scripture, not drifting along in life. You might read that, that phrase, lose what we have worked for, and think, oh, that's, that's work salvation. Or you might say to yourself, well, that fits with maybe a church you went in as a kid, or maybe you go to now, or some teaching that you've heard that if you do enough good things between God and doing enough good things, you'll get your way into heaven. Well, that's, that is not what this is teaching here. It's really teaching that Christianity is a, is a team sport. It is not something done alone on an island, but it's something together. And... Um, why don't we turn to Galatians 4? I think Galatians 4 gives us kind of a picture of this. You don't have to turn there. You can just, uh, I'll just read it. Or if you can turn there if you would like. But if you think about Christianity not being done on an island, um, if, you, if you look into some church history, there's some, there's some kind of some goofiness that would go on maybe end of the second century, into the third century, into the fourth century, some. And, and one of the issues and I'll just hit this before we get into Galatians chapter 4. Christi Christians knew how things were supposed to work under persecution. So when there's persecution going on, I understood that while I'm preaching, I need to be watching because people might be bursting in these doors of the house church that I'm leading, let's say. Or I need to be aware when I'm walking around as a Christian, I might get treated differently at a store. Or I might, I might have to warn my children, hey, you might not get a job that you were hoping for because, remember, in this town, there's a lot of persecution going on. And that was just, that was just normal Christianity. Then you, you fast forward some years and Christianity becomes legal. Things fast forward a little bit more and Christianity becomes the, the religion of the nation. Fast forward a little bit more and Christianity is, is pretty much required or expected. And, and then what are we believing? Then we have a group that might have been just this small group over here, and now we have this whole group. And some that used to mock me as a Christian don't say anything to affirm truth, but now they're here too. And there'd be some tension there, right? There'd be some struggle. Um, and so people responded different ways. Uh, monasticism became popular at this time because, you know what? I'm going to take one of my friends, three of my friends, or 30 of my friends, and we're going to go out into the desert and get away from all that junk. Monasticism was exploding at that time. Another one was, and you can do some reading on this, like pole sitting that was popular in like the 1920s in the United States. They had a version of that in Christianity where people would actually go out and sit on a pillar kind of thing and would live on the top of that. And people would send them up, their disciples would send them up food and take back the things they didn't need. And you're thinking, this is too bizarre. No, it really is true. Because I didn't want to get involved with the junk of this world. Because I'm starting to see life as maybe if I just am alone, I'm not tempted by sin. Maybe I'm not, I don't have to deal with anybody else's sin. I can just be away from everything. 
But I've made the statement that Christianity is a, is a team sport, if you will. But look at what Paul says in Galatians. He says, um, and he's been dealing with some sin they're struggling with. He says in verse 11, I'm afraid I have maybe labored over you in vain. He doesn't say, you go live your life over there, and, I, and I'm going to live my life over there and just do your thing. He says, no, 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 I've labored over you. It's breaking my heart. And then he says in 19 and 20, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I'm perplexed about you. He's not saying, yeah, I'm over here and you're over there. Just do your thing. And if things work for you, you'll be in heaven. And if they work for me, I'll be in heaven. He's saying, no, I care so deeply, I'm in anguish. He talks about sleepless nights and other places in Scripture. We should care deeply, deeply, deeply about each other. And we should care enough that we're willing to speak up. We should care enough that we're willing to listen when others speak up to us. Christianity is not made to be alone. And then as we, as we continue on with truth protected, um, it's healthy to look to heavenly reward. Uh, turn back to 2 John, and let's, let's consider it. says, we don't want to lose what we have worked for in verse 8 of 2 John, but may win a full reward. Humanly, we often like to think, well, um, humanly, we would like to get rewarded right away. When you uh, earn money, we like to get paid right away. When we are honoring God, selfishly, most of us are tempted in some version of personal prosperity gospel where we kind of want God to hook us up right away. But there is oh so much in scripture about a long look. Hey, Abraham was faithful in Hebrews 11, and he's going to have children as a sand in the seashore, but he didn't ex experience that while he was on earth. And there's so much in Scripture that talks about future reward. Matthew 5, talking about persecution. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they, the prophets who were before you. Again, looking to future reward in Hebrews 11. Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater than all the treasures in Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. 1 Peter chapter 5, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory, looking to future reward is a healthy thing. And then the serious warning continues in verse 9. So he says in verse 8, watch yourselves. And then he says in verse 9, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Well, what is this going on the head? Well, going on ahead would be kind of looking for more. I'm trying to find more out of Christianity. I'm trying to find something new out of God. I'm trying to, to find some, some boundary that's never been breached before, finding something that no one else sees. It's a serious caution that I have about some and charismatic movements when oftentimes, I shouldn't say oftentimes, where it can be that the focus on something new or something exciting can trump Scripture. And that is just some, but it's a caution that I have. But say, believer, find great confidence in the teaching of Christ given to us through the word. The Holy Spirit directs through the word. He comforts through the word. The word is such a gift. And then John has this example um, that I think is really interesting. Because if, if most of us were writing 2 John, if, if we know how, God, how the word came to us, that the, that the holy men of old spoke as they were directed or guided 
by the Holy Spirit. But if you were writing 2 John, you would not include these next two verses. But they fit, and they're good, and they're excellent for us. What does it say in these last two verses? He gives this example, this apostle that pushes love more than anyone else arguably in Scripture. He's known as the, the apostle of love. He's the apostle whom Jesus loved. He, um, Jesus, at his death, uh, says, hey, here is your mother to John, and mother, here is your son. So love, 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 he does something that most of us look at and say, is this, is this unloving? What does he say in verse 10 and 11? He says, if anyone comes to you, this is his example, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him even any greeting." For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. On our society today, we say hi to everybody. We welcome everybody. What is, what is going on here? It feels so, so unloving. Well, traveling preachers and speakers of that day would be traveling. They'd be coming in and out. You'd be seeing them all the time. That'd be a normal thing for them to be staying in a house. Um, is this saying we shouldn't have hospitality? Well, well absolutely not. I mean, the, the women's study starting next week is going to be about hospitality by Rosario Butterfield. Um, the Greek word for hospitality is connected to two strangers. Um, Hebrews 13 says, hey, if you've, you should entertain strangers because in doing so, you might entertain angels unaware. So it's not, we shouldn't go hide in our house and, oh, the doorbell rang, go hide in the basement. That is not what it's saying here. But really this greeting, don't give this greeting, that greeting is almost like saying, hey, let me extend the right hand of fellowship to you. Hey, we're we're in this together. Or, hey, may, may God bless you is kind of the idea right here. And kind of the thinking is, is it better to be Mr. Friendly Guy and usher someone into hell than to lovingly and firmly remind them of biblical truth? So what might that look like in real life? Well, don't publicly or privately endorse an individual or thinking that doesn't represent Christ. Don't nod along at work when they're telling about something that isn't biblically accurate just because you don't want to look like the weird guy. Don't be okay with anti-God words or actions. It's really the idea in that section. Then he has this closing, which he shows love again. He says, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete and the children of your elect sister greet you and i think that's a pretty good allusion to another local church saying i love you i'm excited to get together again let's talk you bring me joy because of jesus christ so so in this study of second john when we've looked at truth practiced a little before that truth introduced and now truth protected what are we to learn from that what are we to walk away with today I think, first of all, it would be intense love for every sibling in Christ. I notice I said that every sibling. I already, I've already referenced it, but some people are easy for other people to love, and some people are not. And we all have people. You know, think of Christmas or a family reunion or whatever it is, and there are people that are a little more prickly than others. There are people that you click with a little bit better. But the push and point of this passage is to love them all. You might not be best friends with everybody. You might not know every detail of every person's life out of 250 or 300 people. But the goal is intense love for every sibling in Christ. And love equals action. 
And secondly, it would be intense scrutiny, intense warning for every false believer for false teaching. In our world of kind of wanting to make truth pretty mushy, one of the things that's happened is all kinds of people want to brawl over which team is the best, which that's fine, you know, as long as the brawl, you know, brawling is a quote-unquote brawling, please. They want to argue over what team is the best, but few people want to say Jesus Christ is the only way. Well, you're not making up your own words. He said it. Those are his words. So we don't want to say that because it looks awkward, but I'll brawl over the, the Broncos or I'll brawl over, and I think we need to think about this. Can we winsomely, kindly, and lovingly, accurately represent Christ and speak truth? Um, you might read you know, John MacArthur's Truth Wars. Um, a really good one is, is Nancy Piercy's Total Truth. It's probably 10 or 12 years old now, but a really good biblical thinking on truth and worldview and where does that take me and you'll read some worldview books that are really lightweight and some are so deep they're like let me reread this sentence let me reread this sentence but um, um, Nancy Piercy is really a good writer and that might be a book you could borrow a copy or two that we have or, or buy that for yourself a good one to guide and direct third question how do we live in this time of everyone having their own truth I think it's healthy to remind ourselves that Christians have always had to deal with people wanting to twist the truth, change the truth, question, is there really truth? So when Athanasius, because um, I think it fits well with, with the uh, catechism that we read today, when Athanasius is, is fighting for truth at the Council of Nicaea in the 300s, he's just this young guy. And actually, he, he shouldn't even maybe technically been much of a speaker because Alexander was really the bishop there that was kind of in charge of the, the biblical side, if you will, against Arius. But Athanasius was extremely smart and extremely gifted by God, and he was really crafted this probably in his 20s. And then Alexander promptly dies, and he's a bishop of Alexandria. So who's going to carry the torch now? Well, it's, it's Athanasius, this young guy. And actually at that time, one of the things that I think is so interesting about it is that um, there were probably more people that said they were a Christian that did not believe in the deity of Christ. So it would really be at that time, especially in that area, it would be like, let's say, hypothetically, every single person in this room says, I'm a Christian, okay? But this section and this section, part of that section, were Arians. They didn't even believe in the deity of Jesus. He's just a super good dude. And this group over here and this little front section over here is saying, wait, what? you've, you've taken the, the name Christianity. Wait, you've, you have the Bible, but you're not following it. And Athanasius was the voice repeatedly saying, fully God and fully man. And I could look at Athanasius' life and I could think, oh, what a hard thing. I'm sure at 27 or whatever he was, he wasn't looking for that. Maybe he would have wanted to do Bible studies with this guy over here. Maybe he wanted to do, you know, I don't know, but God used him in an amazing way. And throughout history, that has been true. Most of the people that fought for things like the Trinity, that fought for all kinds of truths of Scripture that we can take for granted today, weren't looking to fight with those. Re the Reformers weren't looking to make fights, but they held up the Word of God and said, I can do no other. And that is what we must do with truth. So we need to revel in the gospel. This is salvation. This is life. This is what Christ has done. What else do we need to do? We need to share the Word. We need to pray 
And we need to trust the Holy Spirit to work. So when you talk with people tomorrow, I guess many of you aren't working tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday at work this week, and uphold truth, revel in the gospel, pray, share the word, and know that the Holy Spirit is the one that works. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this short letter. It's challenging us to us. We've got truth, 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 love, love, love. And we struggle to love at times. And most of us like to think, well, I don't struggle with truth, but Lord, we do. Do I uphold what is true? Do I uphold what is true by my actions? Lord, let our actions, our words, and our thoughts be delightful to you today. In Jesus' name. Amen.